There is a Jewish legend that in the beginning, God created ten portions of love, joy, peace, and beauty. He then poured out nine of those ten portions on Jerusalem. It is indeed the most fascinating and fabulous city on earth. Even from a secular viewpoint, Jerusalem is intriguing. It's the crossroads between modern and ancient, east and west, Christian, Jew, and Muslim. Enter the old city and you step back in time 2,000 years, and yet at the same time, you realize that Jerusalem is the future focal point of God's plan for the ages. A visit to Jerusalem is a back-to-the-future kind of experience. One day, Jesus will reign over the entire universe from Jerusalem. The 48th Psalm says of the holy city, Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. Jerusalem is a beautiful city. It's a delightful city. It is the holy city. And yet the city of Jerusalem has had a bloody and brutal history. One historian counts as many as 27 different occasions when Jerusalem was conquered by foreign armies. Many of those defeats included carnage and destruction. It's been said to walk the streets of Jerusalem is to walk on top of the world's largest graveyard. You know, with privilege comes responsibility. And over the years... God has judged Jerusalem for its rebellion. Ironically, the name Jerusalem means city of peace. But over its 4,000 year history, the city's periods of peace have been very, very short-lived. In fact, tonight, we pick up in the midst of six woes or warnings to the Jerusalem of Hezekiah's day. The invader at the time was the Assyrian. But Isaiah's prophecy goes far beyond the immediate threat. It speaks of Jerusalem even in the last days, surrounded by the nations of the world. Remember now, the book of Isaiah is sort of like chocolate vanilla swirl ice cream. Ever had a bowl of chocolate vanilla swirl? This is the dessert of heaven. Chocolate vanilla swirl. In each spoonful, you get a little bit of chocolate. And you get a little bit of vanilla all kind of blended together. Well, that's sort of like Isaiah. Each spoonful in Isaiah tastes a little bit of judgment and a little bit of blessing. Isaiah is a blend of God's pending judgments and his future blessings. You might say Isaiah is a swirl of both woes and wows. Chapter 32 begins... Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule with justice. This king is no surprise. Our Lord Jesus is the king. Revelation 19 verse 16 tells us that when Jesus returns, he'll have his name tatted up his thigh. It reads, King of kings and Lord of lords. The king is expected. But what might surprise you are the princes who reign with Jesus. (laughs) That's you and me. Luke 19 tells the parable of three servants who were entrusted with their master's resources. The servants invested those resources wisely and they were rewarded. 
The master said to them, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, you have authority over ten cities. I won't even need to reign over ten cities. I'll be happy if Honolulu gets assigned to me. I'll be content with just that one, Honolulu. I'll take that. But notice our reward as Christians, as faithful servants of God, is authority. It's the right to rule. Authority in the kingdom is the Christian's reward. Revelation 5 verse 10 is the voice of the redeemed. You have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Indeed we will when Jesus returns. Verse 2 tells us, A man will be as a hiding place from the wind, and a cover from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock, In a weary land. Here Isaiah foresees a man who's many things. He's a refuge. He's a shelter. He's an oasis. And he's a foundation. This is a tall order for a mere man. Unless that man is the God man. Christ Jesus. Once again the king is coming. The eyes of those who see will not be dim. And the ears of those who hear will listen. Also the heart of the rash will understand knowledge, and the tongue of the stammerers will be ready to speak plainly. (laughs) This means there's hope for me and you. There's hope for the impulsive and the tongue-tied. Any impulsive and tongue-tied here tonight? When Zach was a little guy, I took him shopping one year for a new baseball glove. And I'll never forget it. He paused at the display rack, and he bowed his little head, And he prayed for a few seconds. And then when he lifted up his head, he pointed to the glove that he wanted. I bought him the glove. But as we were leaving the the store, the the sporting goods store, he, he started to have second thoughts. I'll never forget, he turned to me and he said, Dad, I'm not sure I chose the right glove. I don't really know how God talks to you about baseball stuff. Well, this is our problem, isn't it? It's easy to discern God's will on moral matters, on spiritual truths. Just open up your Bible. But who to marry? Or what job to take? Or which college to attend? These are all more difficult decisions, aren't they? How does God speak to us on that kind of stuff? And yet here's an encouragement. God promises to help our eyes see and help our ears hear. You see, rather than act rashly or or our lips to stammer trying to find an answer, we're told the ears of those who hear will listen. As we said this morning, if your heart is right, if you're listening, God will see to it that you hear. I believe God wants us to know His will more than we want to know His will. Personally, I put a lot more confidence in His ability to speak than in my ability to hear. He's telling us here that he'll get his message through if we're listening. Verse 5. The foolish person will no longer be called generous, nor the miser said to be bountiful. When Jesus returns, there'll be no more masks. Everyone will be known for who they really are, not who they purport to be. Whenever Jesus rules, hypocrisy vanishes. Truth and reality reign. He says, for the foolish person will speak foolishness. And his heart will work iniquity. 
to practice ungodliness, to utter error against the Lord, to keep the hungry unsatisfied, and he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. Also, the schemes of the schemer are evil. He devises wicked plans to destroy the poor with lying words, even when the needy speaks justice. But a generous man devises generous things, and by generosity he shall stand. Boy, in the light of Jesus, every heart will be exposed. There'll be no more pretense. Evil people will be revealed as evil. Generous people will be known for their generosity. There'll be no more acting the part. What a day that'll be. I love how John Wayne summed up his acting career. He said, no matter my character, I always play John Wayne. <laughs> I like that. You know, this should be true of every Christian. No matter my character, I'm just a Christian. You know, whether I'm acting as a friend here, or as an employee, or as a boss, or as a husband, or as a dad, or as a neighbor, that doesn't really matter. I'm just going to be a Christian. No matter my character, I'm acting as a Christian. As one old man said, if you ain't who you is, then you is who you ain't. Never let that be said of us. The true mark of Christianity is genuineness, being who you say you are. Verse 9, rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. You know, usually women are more sensitive to the men when it comes to spiritual matters. But in Isaiah's day, apparently it was just the opposite. There were some hard-hearted women. As the old country song puts it, she's so cold I'm turning blue. There were some hard-hearted women. He says, in a year and some days you will be troubled, you complacent women. For the vintage will fail, the gathering will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Be troubled, you complacent ones. Strip yourselves, make yourselves bare, and gird sackcloth on your waists. See, sackcloth was a sign of remorse. The women of Jerusalem need to repent of their apathy and their complacency. You know, it's been said, the number one problem in the country is apathy. But who cares? It's been said of the church, 10% of people are actively engaged in progressive change. 10% are actively engaged in resisting change. And the other 80% just sit there. Do you just sit there or do you care? Once a preacher stood up before his church and he said to the people, I have three statements to make. First, there are millions of people around the world going to hell. Second, most of us here today don't give a damn about it. And third, 95% of you are more concerned about your pastor saying a cuss word than you are about the millions of people who are going to hell. True. How many of us have grown apathetic and complacent toward the people around us who are populating the flames of hell? How many of us are apathetic toward our own worship and our own growth in our relationship with God? It's time to sound a wake-up call. We need to wake up to what really matters to God. He says, people shall mourn upon their breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine." On the land of my people will come up thorns and briars. Yes, on all the 
happy homes in the joyous city because the palaces will be forsaken. The bustling city will be deserted. The forts and towers will become lairs forever. A joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. Jewish cities and suburbs alike will be abandoned and they'll become homes for wild animals, he says. Now remember in Revelation 12, we're told of Daniel's 70th week. This is what the Bible calls great tribulation. It's the final seven years before Jesus returns. At the midpoint, Satan gets booted out of heaven. He responds by retaliating against God's kids, Israel. How do you harm someone? (laughs) The best way is to attack their kids. Armies of the world flood into the Holy Land and they surround Jerusalem. The Jews, they flee in mass southward into the desert. Recall Isaiah 14 spoke of the Jews escaping to the rock city of Petra. They're on the border between Moab and Edom. A once thriving, bustling metropolis, Metro Jerusalem, will be abandoned and will become a ghost town. The Jews will be held up at Petra. This is what's going to happen in the last days. But in verse 15, there's hope. Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is counted as a forest. You see, the last days, we'll see an incredible outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Israel. You remember in Acts chapter 2, Peter quoted Joel, a prophet who lived just before Isaiah. And he quoted Joel by saying, And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. It's interesting, Peter had connected the dots. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the last days was the same that occurred on the church at the day of Pentecost. Different timing, different people, but the same empowerment. And so Peter could quote Joel and apply it to the church. The Holy Spirit is being poured out in the last days. Today, the Spirit's being poured out on us. In that day, the Spirit will be poured out again upon Israel. God will draw their hearts back to Himself, and they'll look on Him whom they've pierced, Zechariah 12 tells us. And they'll put their faith in Jesus. So that as Paul said to the Romans in Romans chapter 11 verse 25. In the end all Israel will be saved. He says then justice will dwell in the wilderness. And righteousness remain in the fruitful field. The work of righteousness will be peace. And the effect of righteousness quietness and assurance forever. Notice there's no peace apart from righteousness. When justice is ignored there can be no peace quiet or no peace. Verse 18, my people will dwell in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Though hail comes down on the forest, and the city is brought low in humiliation, blessed are you who sow beside all waters, who send out freely the feet of the ox and the donkey. Well, chapter 33 describes God's judgment on the invaders. In Hezekiah's day, it was Assyria. In the last days, it'll be the nations led by Antichrist. He says, Woe to you who plunder, though you have not been plundered. And you who deal treacherously, though they have not dealt treacherously with you. When you cease plundering, you will be plundered. When you make an end of dealing treacherously, then you will deal treacherously with you. 
You know, Isaiah is speaking to the Assyrian general Sennacherib. Hezekiah, king of Judah, tried to buy his protection. He paid tribute or blood money to Sennacherib. And yet the Assyrian took the money, yet still attacked. In other words, he acted treacherously. And this too will be the Antichrist's M.O. He'll deal treacherously with Israel. He'll sign a covenant, you remember. And then he'll turn around and violate the terms of that covenant and he'll attack the Jews midway through the great tribulation. Well, verse 2 is the cry of the Jews. O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their arm every morning, our salvation also in the time of trouble. At the noise of the tumult, the people shall flee. When you lift yourself up, the nation shall be scattered and your plunder shall be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar as the running to and fro of locusts. You shall run upon them. In the end, God will avenge his people. And of course, this applies to the Jews, but it also applies to us. You know, in Romans 12, verse 19, God says to the church, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. He says that to you. He says it to me. God promises to take care of dishing out vengeance. Our job is to extend grace and forgiveness. Remember that when you think of your ex-spouse. Or your harsh boss. Or your unfair co-workers. Remember, vengeance is mine. I will repay says the Lord. Verse 5, The Lord is exalted, for He dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times and the strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is His treasure. Uh, these are some wonderful phrases. Wisdom provides stability. Don't you sense that? Wisdom provides stability. The fear of the Lord is a great treasure. Surely their valiant ones shall cry outside. The ambassadors of peace shall weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The traveling man ceases. He has broken the covenant. He has despised the cities. He regards no man. The earth mourns and languishes. Lebanon is shamed and shriveled. Sharon is like a wilderness. And Bashan and Carmel shake off their fruits. These were lush regions. Sharon, the Rose of Sharon, you've heard of that? Bashan and Carmel. Carmel. Carmel was the mountain up in the northern area. It's so beautiful. has the olive groves on it and so forth. We, we visit there. We always go to the top of Carmel, look out over the valley of Megiddo. Bashan is where the cows of Bashan, you remember the cows of Bashan, ladies? Over in the Golan Heights. These were all lush regions of Israel that were plundered by the invaders. Verse 10. Now I will rise, says the Lord. Now I will be exalted. Now I will lift myself up. God knows when His people have had enough. And in the last days, Israel's troubles will purify them, not pulverize them. There will come a time when, when they will arise. They will be exalted. He says, you shall conceive chaff. You shall bring forth stubble. Your breath as fire shall devour you. And the people shall be like the burnings of lime, like thorns cut up. They shall be burned in the fire. Hear, you who are afar off, what I have done. And you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, 
He who despises the gain of oppressions, who gestures with his hands, refusing bribes, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. Notice the safe path is to walk righteously. Protection comes not by knowing where to walk necessarily, but by knowing how to walk. Walking righteously is the safe path. And what does it mean to walk righteously? Well, according to Isaiah, it involves many things. First, it involves speaking truth. It involves abhorring greed. It even involves gestures and body language. It involves a quickness to shun evil. It involves being discreet in what you hear. Can I check what's on your iPod? And it certainly involves, as he says, shutting my eyes to evil. Does that mean God cares about what I watch on television? And what websites I surf? Absolutely. Verse 16 says of the end time Jews, He will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Where will Israel hide in these last days? The prophecy in Isaiah 14 identifies the future refuge. The fortress of rocks is a reference to the rock city of Petra. Verse 17. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will see the land that is very far off. Imagine that. Seeing King Jesus in his beauty. That's something to look forward to. During his first advent, we saw him in his humility. Not in his glory. But when we see him again, he will appear in radiant splendor. And every sunset you've ever seen, every sunrise, every starry sky, every painting... Every fireworks display will suddenly become boring to you. For every beautiful thing your eye has ever seen will pale in comparison to the beauty of King Jesus. And you know, we'll get to see him before the Jews do. According to scripture, the church is raptured at least seven years prior to the second coming of Jesus. We'll get to see him first. I don't know about you, but I'm looking for him tonight. Verse 18, your heart will meditate on terror. Where is the scribe? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? You will not see a fierce people, a people of obscure language, beyond perception of a stammering tongue that you cannot understand. Isaiah is speaking here of the Assyrian invaders. Their language is strange to the Jewish ears. They're they're a people of a stammering tongue, He, he, he describes them. He says, look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed, nor will any of its cords be broken. Assyria invaded the northern suburbs of Jerusalem. They surrounded the city, but they never plundered the city itself. And likewise, in the end, Jerusalem will stand secure. Here Isaiah says, its stakes are permanent. In the end, it will live up to its name, the city of peace. Well, Isaiah describes God's future blessing on Jerusalem. But there, the majestic Lord will be for us 
a place of broad rivers and streams in which no galley with oars will sail nor majestic ships pass by. Now, now here's the imagery that he's conjuring up. He says, the Lord is like a broad river. You know, a refreshing water supply that's flowing into the city. And yet, a wide river invites enemy ships to navigate their waters. You know, a a wide river can, can invite the enemy to actually come up into the city. But that would have been the case if it had not been for the majestic Lord, Isaiah says. It's the majestic Lord that stops this from happening. Verse 22, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Yahweh will stop these invaders. And notice the three names God, God is called here in verse 22. He's called judge. He's called lawgiver. And he's called king. Now think of our government. American democracy. Republic. Our constitution lays out three branches of government. There's the judicial. There's the legislative. There's the executive. Jesus is the judge. He's the lawgiver. Jesus is the king. There's the same parallel. Our three branches of government and the three names here that Jesus are called. Where do you think our forefathers found that design? (laughs) In the Bible. Of course. Scripture is the basis of so much of American democracy. Is America a Christian nation today? Well, I guess that's debatable. But here's what's not debatable. Would there be a United States of America without the Bible and without Christianity? Absolutely not. So much of our Constitution, so much of our Republican principles are based on Scripture. That's clear. There's one big difference between God's government and American government. In God's government, the same person occupies all three branches. Jesus is the head of the judiciary and the legislature. And he's the chief executive. There's no separation of powers because Jesus can be trusted. Back to the ship metaphor. Verse 23. Your tackle is loosed. They could not strengthen their mast. They could not spread the sail. Then the prey of great plunder is divided. The lame take the prey. In other words, God will defeat the invaders and He'll heal the citizens of Jerusalem. And the inhabitant will not say, I am sick. The people who dwell in it will be forgiven their iniquity. Now Isaiah 34. Come near you nations to hear and heed you people. Let the earth hear in all that is in it, the world and all things that come forth from it. I'd like to quote for you a passage from the famed Bible commentators, Kiel and Delish. You know, I'm telling you that a lot of this transcends the immediate circumstances and is pointing to the end times. I want you to hear another authoritative source, Kyle and Delich. And I want you to hear what they write about chapters 34 and 35, just to let you know I'm not alone in my opinion. This is what they say. We feel that Isaiah is carried away from the stage of history and is transported into the midst of the last days. He has broken away from his own time, and the end of all things has become more and more his home. 
Here is where Isaiah becomes a seer indeed. He sees off into the future. Chapter 34 focuses on the final battle, the battle that ends all battles, the battle of Armageddon. Chapter 35 sees the kingdom age that follows. Verse 2. For the indignation of the Lord is against all nations, and His fury against all their armies. He will utterly destroy them. He has given them over to the slaughter. Notice the Lord will be angry at all nations. Apparently, the last days will see a push toward globalism. God broke up the nations at the Tower of Babel, but in the end, Satan will rally the nations together for one final revolt under the sway of his man, the Antichrist. And even today, we see trends moving in this direction. One world solutions, global coalitions, a new world order as it's hailed. National sovereignty today is viewed as an impediment to progress. Supposedly, the world is getting smaller and smaller, and we need to work together. But this is the snowball effect that will build up to this end-time revolt. Visualize world peace if you like, but it's eventually going to lead to an evil climax. Verse 3 tells us, Also their slain shall be thrown out, their stench shall rise from their corpses, and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. The day is coming when the world will unite, its armies at least. And it's not just the love of money that brings them together, it's their hatred of the Jews. The Antichrist will invade Israel. He will come against Jerusalem. The armies of the world will stage their campaign in the valley of Jezreel, or Armageddon as it's called. The valley just north of the mountain of Megiddo. This famous valley is in northern Israel. It's there at the foot of Mount Carmel. We actually go to the top of Mount Carmel and we look out over the valley. It's an incredible, it's a panoramic view. It stretches forever it seems. As far as the eye can see. It was Napoleon who stood there and he looked out over this expansive valley and he made the comment that there was room here for all the armies of the world to camp. That's exactly what Isaiah predicts. You know, when we think of the final battle, we call it the Battle of Armageddon. But but it's not Megiddo that they fight for. It's really the battle for Jerusalem. Armageddon is just the staging ground, the staging area. The spoils of the battle are further south, the holy city, Jerusalem. In fact, the fighting will spill over into the whole region. As far south as Basra or Edom, the future hideout of the end time Jews, another name for Basra, the rock city of Petra. We're jumping ahead a bit, but in Isaiah 63, we foresee Jesus, the Messiah, and he's coming up from Edom. Listen to Isaiah. Who is this who comes from Edom? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Why is your apparel red? And your garments like one who treads in the winepress. I have trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments. And I've stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart. What a stunning picture of our Lord Jesus. Oh, today we admire Jesus for His mercy. But in that day, He'll be known for His wrath. Jesus will come to earth to kick butt and take names. That's what He'll do. 
He runs the Antichrist into the desert and he slaughters the soldiers until his robes are stained with their blood. The same Lord who shed his blood to forgive mankind will shed the blood of those who rebel rebel against him in the end. Never forget the cross is the only beating that Jesus will ever take. When he returns, it won't be his blood splattered on his robe. It'll be the blood of those rebels who've allied against him. The great tribulation will be a terrible time. The plagues will be so intense, so widespread, that Revelation tells us men will try to hide in caves and in holes from what John calls the wrath of the Lamb. What an expression. The wrath of the Lamb. Vance Habner used to say, the day is coming when the most expensive piece of real estate will be a hole. Verse 4, all the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. All their host shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine, and as fruit falling from a fig tree. Isaiah foresees a day when nature goes nuts. Comets and meteors fall from the sky like leaves falling from the trees on an autumn day. Planets collide. They brush orbits. John also saw this incredible cosmic upheaval. In Revelation 6, God is opening the title deed of the earth to take possession for what belongs to Him. And when He pops the sixth seal, it unleashes these cosmic disturbances on planet earth. And Isaiah here, he uses some really mind-bending language. Now remember, he's writing 2,700 years ago. But it's as if he's privy to the latest theories in tensor calculus and particle physics and string theory and quantum mechanics. Remember, this is a Hebrew prophet named Isaiah writing in verse 4, not a German physicist named Einstein, and yet his insights are amazing. Understand, man's last frontier isn't outer space, it's inner space. The fascination among today's cosmologists is the study of subatomic particles. Scientists have discovered that when a particle travels very, very fast and approaches the speed of light, it behaves in very strange ways. In fact, the search is on for a set of laws that govern all of these subatomic particles, the gluons and the quarks and the photons. These are infinitesimally small little particles. They're the building blocks of the universe. One theory is that the universe is made up not of four dimensions, but actually ten dimensions. Length, width, depth, and time are the dimensions that we can see. But scientists postulate other unknown dimensions that can't be seen. The idea is that these invisible dimensions are hidden because they're so small that they're rolled up under the edge of the universe. Only time and space are flat enough to be seen. That the universe is actually curved or it's rolled up like a scroll. The exact language that Isaiah uses here in verse 4. Don't ask me to explain it any further. I'm already over my head. But suffice it to say, the amazing ideas coming out of modern cosmology today still haven't caught up to the truths that the biblical authors revealed 2,700 years ago. 
God says in verse 5, For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down on Edom and on the people of my curse for judgment. Notice again, the focal point of the battle of Armageddon, God's judgment on the armies of the world, is Edom or Basra or Petra. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made overflowing with fatness, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. The wild oxen shall come down with them and the young bulls with the mighty bulls. Their land shall be soaked with blood and their dust saturated with fatness. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. God will defend Jerusalem. Its streams shall be turned into pitch and its dust into brimstone. Its land shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched night or day. Its smoke shall ascend forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. No one shall pass through it forever and ever. Edom will become a place of utter desolation. It sounds like the aftermath really of a nuclear explosion, doesn't it? He says, but the pelican and the porcupine shall possess it. Also the owl and the raven shall dwell in it. And he shall stretch out over it the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness. They shall call its nobles to the kingdom, but none shall be there. And all its princes shall be nothing. And thorns shall come up in its palaces, nettles and brambles in its fortresses. It shall be a habitation of jackals, a courtyard for ostriches. The wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the jackals, and the wild goat shall bleat to its companion. Also the night creature shall rest there and find for herself a place of rest. There the arrow snake shall make her nest and lay eggs and hatch and gather them under her shadow. There also shall the hawks be gathered, every one with her mate. Search from the book of the Lord and read, Not one of these shall fail, not one shall lack her mate. For my mouth has commanded it, and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them, and his hand has divided it among them with a measuring line. They shall possess it forever from generation to generation. They shall dwell in it. Isaiah 35 is a preview of coming attractions. It's a foretaste of what we're going to find now in chapters 40 through 66. It's going to take us a while to get back to that, but we'll eventually get there. There the tone of Isaiah is going to change dramatically. The dark night of earth's history gives way to a millennial morning. That's what we find here in chapter 35. It's a preview of when Jesus returns to judge the wicked, to deliver Israel. And that's not all. For when Jesus returns, He'll remain on this earth. And He'll rule it. And He'll reconstruct the fallen planet. And He'll rejuvenate us from the effects of our sin. The earth will be restored. Everything that sin has defiled will one day be cleansed and restored. This is the hope that God has given us. Chapter 35 begins. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them. And the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. Environmentalists today are warning us that every year the forests are receding. The deserts are expanding their boundaries. They're gobbling up the trees and the farmland. It's an ongoing man-made disaster. But in the age to come when Jesus reigns, He'll solve these ecological problems. 
course, that doesn't mean that we should wait on Him to return in order to take responsibility to oversee His creation. That just means that the ultimate answers will be provided by Jesus. Here we're told that when Jesus reigns, deserts will bloom again. Earth will be returned to its original garden character. In a sense, mankind will find himself at home again in the Garden of Eden. Verse 2, the world shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord. The excellency of our God. Again, Carmel and Sharon are areas of Israel known for their beauty. Here all the earth will become like a garden paradise. And it will cause everyone to be in awe of the glory of the Lord. And of the excellency of our God. Verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. When we see Jesus on the throne, it will inspire courage and strength. But this is true right now, is it not? Weak hands and wobbly knees both become strong when we see that Jesus is on the throne. That Jesus is in charge. This is why Isaiah's own vision, we studied it this morning, back in chapter 6, is so strategic. Remember, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And immediately, he came undone. Dressed down by God's holiness. Undone by the sin that he didn't realize existed. And yet the end result of his prayer, Here am I, Lord. Send me. The realization that God was on high. Lifted up Isaiah. Strengthened Isaiah. Strengthened his hands to do the will of God. Strengthened his knees to rise up and stand for God. His whole life changed when he saw God sitting on the throne. And the same will happen to you when you see Jesus on the throne in your life. And when Jesus establishes his future kingdom, amazing miracles will occur. You think he worked miracles at his first coming? Just wait until he comes again. We're told, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer. And the tongue of the dumb sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool. And the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals where each lay. There shall be grass with reeds and rushes. Wasteland will turn into farmland. And a highway shall be there. And a road. And it shall be called the highway of holiness. Route 777, I imagine. The unclean shall not pass over it. But it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. You know, for the last 2,000 years, the Jews have been scattered all over, the, all over the world. We call it the diaspora or the dispersion. Only recently have they begun to return to Israel. But there is one more diaspora awaiting the Jews. When the Antichrist invades Israel, Jews will flee to the four corners of the globe. And this is why when Jesus defeats the Antichrist and his armies, one of his very first projects, one of the first projects of his kingdom will be the establishment of a DOT, GDOT, 
God's Department of Transportation. And their first contract will be to build a superhighway, the Highway of Holiness, that will bring the Jews from around the world all back to Israel. Isaiah describes this highway. He says, No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go up on it. It shall not be found there. In other words, it holds no dangers. But the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransom of the Lord shall return, and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sign shall flee away. And not only will Jews come to Jerusalem on this highway, but all nations will visit. Zechariah 14 verse 16 reads, Everyone who is left of all the nations which came up against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king. You know, we'll all take tours of Jerusalem. We'll go up annually and we'll worship King Jesus. We'll take the highway of holiness up to Jerusalem. Finally, the city that has suffered so long will indeed be the city of peace. There we have our chapters for tonight.